As a reminder, this podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as medical or legal advice. With that said, we hope you enjoy the episode. Okay, welcome to the Medical Liability Minute. I'm your host, uh, founder and CEO of Medical Justice, Jeff Siegel, and I'm joined today by a good friend. He's another attorney. His name is Rick Collins. Let me do the formal introduction. Rick is a New York lawyer and former prosecutor who has built a nationwide practice in health, wellness, and fitness. Based out of New York as a partner in the law firm of Collins Gann, McClowski, and Barry. He has defended countless individuals and corporate entities against investigations, administrative or disciplinary proceedings, so that sometimes involves physicians, and criminal prosecutions alleging the unlawful marketing distribution or prescription of, of anabolic steroids, human growth hormones, or non-compliant dietary supplements. Supplements. He is internationally recognized as a legal authority in the field of testosterone and other anabolic steroids and performance-enhancing substances, has contributed chapters to three textbooks on sports nutrition, and is a frequent contributor to various health and fitness publications. He serves as legal counsel to the International Society of Sports Nutrition and International Federation of Bodybuilders. And by the way, he received his law degree from Hofstra University School of Law. I am jazzed to have you join us today, Rick. Thanks for joining us. Fantastic. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Always great to chat with you. Yeah, so our astute listeners will remember that you've been with us before. We did a whirlwind tour on anabolic steroids, (laughs) performance-enhancing compounds, human growth hormones. And in terms of our audience, um, many of these, some of these, are prescription medications. And ultimately, there's an intersection between what the patient wants and what the law allows. And that Venn diagram, I guess, allows you to make a living, among other things, at least with physicians, correct? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, certainly when it comes to anabolic steroids, like we we talked a lot about the last time, the demand is is often not medical. It's it's really more cosmetic. It's people, usually men of a certain age, typically maybe twenty five to fifty five or somewhere in that range, who are looking to lose fat, build muscle, look better on the beach in Cancun for, or, or, you know, for a new suitor after their divorce. And so they're looking to obtain some type of anabolic steroid preparation in order to, to just look better cosmetically. And uh, of course, the law does not allow physicians to do that. These are controlled substances that only can be prescribed for a medical reason. Um, And so where there's demand, there's supply, and a lot of that supply as we talked about last time, is the black market. And what's before we got started, we talked briefly about the aging population and how people want to reasonably live to, to be as old as they can, but not just in terms of longevity, but in terms of health span, being able to live to their fullest. And that means wellness. It means um, promoting their health as opposed to just treating medical conditions. And in one sense, our healthcare system is mostly, it's really a sick care system. It's mostly focused on uh, identifying a particular illness, and then there's a magical treatment for that particular illness. But with our aging population, there clearly is demand 
for promotion of function and also performance enhancement. Are those fair statements? Yeah, absolutely. I think our typical traditional medical paradigm is is one of disease-based application. If there's something wrong with you, you go to the doctor. The doctor uses some traditional method, whether it's a drug or surgery to fix it. But the idea of enhancing wellness, of optimizing health, optimizing fitness, uh, feeling better, uh, performing better, that's really not in mainstream medicine's sites. There are, um, as we talked about last time, some physicians, and as maybe we'll talk about today as well, some physicians who are more progressive and are looking more at how wellness uh, can be enhanced through medicine, and some of that involves hormones and different types of, of drugs to optimize health for men, sometimes that's testosterone. And um, and so um, there is a, a, a growing kind of practice within medicine and, and maybe kind of on the on the fringes sometimes of traditional medicine but um, but that is a it's sort of a new view of of wellness so why don't we start with testosterone since you brought it up certainly as men age the natural trajectory of testosterone levels in the body is decline it's different um, in terms of hormones Um, the loss in males follows a more gradual pattern with women. Once they hit menopause, it it falls off a cliff. So it's rather sudden and symptoms appear pretty rapidly. But the decline in testosterone levels, as well as the things testosterone is designed to address, is a slow, gradual change over time. And it's not a surprise that if testosterone can promote and improve some elements of function, that there would be a demand for it. So how does this manifest itself in terms of diagnosis, treatment, and the law? Um, I know that's that can't be answered in one soundbite, but why right, don't we yeah. for, for <laughs> yeah, there's a lot, Jeff. There's so much to unpack there. I, we could talk about testosterone for hours and, and still not cover all the areas. The, the point that you made about kind of the individual decline in testosterone starts typically at, at 30 years old and some say that it decreases uh, by a percentage point every year after that. So the testosterone levels that you have at 40 are substantially less than you had at 25, and and at 50, they're even lower. So we've got this individual decline in testosterone, um, and, and a decline in testosterone has, as you know, all sorts of potential negative attachments to it, including loss of muscle mass and sometimes loss of libido, and it can affect mood. And so all sorts of um, negative aspects come from having low testosterone or what's called hypogonadism. Um, but but also, as a, a quick aside, there's a generational decline in testosterone, mm-hmm. which has been in the news as well, this idea that men today uh, have lower testosterone levels on average than our father's generation did, and that their generation has lower levels than the generation that our grandfathers 
You're talking uh, about age of. matched, meaning the cohort between yes, 20 and age 30. age matched. Absolutely. Yeah. So we're we're seeing that. And and there are different theories on why that is, ranging from the presence of phytoestrogens or endocrine disruptors in in our lives to um, obesity, which also plays a, a role in testosterone levels, to just poor diet, lack of exercise, um, are all factors that are looked at. And so uh, maybe some combination of all of them, but certainly we are losing our testosterone from not only the individual perspective, but from the generational perspective as well. So when people describe a low testosterone level, are they describing it um, for their age cohort, meaning that they are low in their, in their age bracket? Or are they describing it low in general, meaning that if I'm 60 plus years old and my level is normal for a 60 year old individual, uh, but it's but it's low compared to a 30 year old. Right. What what are the numbers people are actually using, meaning that are they comparing it to aged match or are they comparing it to the more youthful aspirational goal? Yeah, it, it's. Yeah, it does. And you're kind of touching on the idea of sort of relative hypogonadism. In other words, maybe your levels were at a certain point a few years ago when you were younger and now they're older. Um, typically, the charts that are used, the range that's looked at for quote unquote normal testosterone is is typically anywhere from roughly 300 nanograms per deciliter is sort of the the low end. Some charts maybe make it 280, but you're talking roughly around there to a high end of maybe a thousand or maybe even 1200 nanograms per deciliter. And so from a treatment perspective, most endocrinologists or um, ordinary traditional practitioners mm -hmm. would look at that range. And if you fall within that range, whether it's in the middle, upper end, or even in the lower end, typically they won't look at you as a patient for the um, prescription of testosterone for hypogonadism or low testosterone. And that means and that's, that's regardless of any complaints you might have walking in. So for example, if walked in and your number is just barely above that lower limit. Um, did you say the lower limit was two fifty? Let's say yeah. Let's say three hundred nanograms per okay, deciliter. So let's say three hundred. So yep. let's say I walk into a clinic and it's three fifteen, um, mm -hmm. and that's just a single isolated value. It doesn't mean that it's two or three different blood draws, you know, and right. they've all been that same number. But that I've I've got symptoms. Let's say my libido's down. I've got I'm mm -hmm. listless. I'm not sleeping well. Um, low energy, um, depressed. Would any of that trigger a revisiting of that conclusion, or in, in, with a traditional endocrinologist or family doc? Would, I think would with, that with not a move traditional the endocrinologist, there there might be some resistance to prescribe testosterone if the levels were even slightly above normal. Obviously, different physicians can look at it differently. I think that more progressive physicians would treat the patient and not just the, the blood levels. Um, obviously, 
you know, to be technically hypogonadal um, is is defined as requiring two blood draws and mm-hmm. you know before you know, early morning blood draws and and looking at those and they both have to be low and so a patient may not qualify as quote unquote hypogonadal in the in the in the full sense of of how it's defined but if the patient is symptomatic there are doctors who will prescribe for low libido or for um for other sorts of symptoms associated with low testosterone will prescribe after ruling out uh, other uh, potential causes of it and and one of the reasons why physicians are so careful about prescribing testosterone is that it's a controlled substance unlike estrogen unlike cortisone unlike other steroids uh, anabolic steroids, which is a class of steroids that includes testosterone and its synthetic variations, anabolic steroids uh, are Schedule three controlled substances, which means that they can only be prescribed for a legitimate medical purpose in the ordinary, usual course of a physician's practice. So physicians are very concerned, uh, and physicians have gotten in trouble for prescribing testosterone or other anabolic steroids under circumstances that appear to not have been medical, in other words, for performance. And as you you know, and we've talked about, Jeff, there are physical advantages to anabolic steroids, including testosterone, in terms of potentially building muscle faster, the so-called bigger, faster, stronger, right? So mm-hmm. um, there are athletes who've used these anabolic steroids to cheat in sports because in, in many sports, they're, they're banned. You're, you're not allowed to use anabolic steroids. So um, to the extent that athletes have used these substances to cheat, um, there's been a stigma attached to them, and, and physicians are, are careful to, to not want to be seen as prescribing anabolic steroids or testosterone non-medically. It is interesting because in other domains that don't have this regulatory or legal overlay, physicians will use their individual judgment to not religiously follow a number. Let me right. uh, Let me illustrate. So, for example, we've most doctors understand that if you're going to give a compound like Dilantin used mm-hmm. to treat seizures, the considered therapeutic level is 10 to 20. I have no idea what the units are, but just stay with me for a moment and assume mm-hmm. that I'm correct. It's 10 <laughs> to 20. It doesn't right. mean that uh, a doctor won't individually try to um, live with a number less than 10 for his particular patient, depending upon whether the patient's getting side effects or they may push that number even above 20 to get a therapeutic effect, meaning that 20 is not good enough to achieve seizure control and the patient doesn't have side effects, meaning that number 10 to 20 is a norm. It's a giant table, a graph, which looks at a population, but we don't treat populations. We treat individuals. Right. And I think if it was just the medical issue, I my guess is this would be treated no, or be perceived as no, no different than other compounds that are prescribed. But for the two reasons that you described, I'd actually only thought of one, but there really are two, meaning that it's a controlled substance and controlled substances um, prescribed improperly 
can land you in prison, or at least you can have a regulatory and legal headache. Sure. And number two, the the overlay with uh, performance-enhancing drugs and sports. Um, but, you know, um, I think it's kind of interesting. There still are doctors that are willing to um, address this individually, understanding what the risks and benefits are to the patients, as well as how to try to manage this and, and live in two worlds. You've got the traditional world of let's follow the table and dot every I and cross the T. And there are others who are saying that, look, I can justify treating this individual medically no different than if we were talking about dilantin and epilepsy. What are your thoughts on that? Right. hundred percent. As long as the doctor is prescribing testosterone for a medical purpose, and and it's within sound medical judgment, um, as long as it's for a medical purpose, uh, it, it doesn't violate the law. I think doctors are just skittish about it because it's a controlled substance um, and uh, are, are typically more reluctant to prescribe. And I think traditional endocrinologists receive probably more training with respect to thyroid and and estrogen related issues than typically um, testosterone and, and male hormone issues. Um, and so I think a lot of these more progressive age management type physicians and clinics are are more uh, interested and and experienced in these issues of male hormone replacement, making men feel better as they age. So I'm sure that your path has crossed, or certainly you've read about different uh, testosterone replacement clinics whose main focus is to identify individuals that may benefit from the replacement therapy. And some market aggressively, some have no marketing and people just find them. And I guess most are in between. Uh, some of these are chains across the country. So they're beholden to giant, uh, they're beholden to uniform marketing policies. And like any business venture, if you tend, if you try to scale quickly, uh, sometimes corners are cut. But I think to the extent that this is a controlled substance, what are some thoughts in terms of what you've seen related to marketing of this, you know, maybe best practices, but also things that you should not be doing. Right. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a very important topic because some of the marketers of these practices, whether it's individual physicians or clinics, and some of them are obviously are, are nationwide kind of networks. Um, the, the issue becomes, is the marketing for medical reasons or for non-medical reasons? And certainly, you, you can market for for medical purposes. Um, obviously, you can't market off-label. You can only market and advertise on-label. In, in for testosterone, that typically might be hypogonadism or low testosterone. But um, but you can then prescribe for other medical reasons. I, I've seen the websites and marketing materials of some of these these groups that are marketing off label. They're marketing to treat off label, not not 
hypogonadism, but perhaps uh, weight loss, um, improved sexual function, all of those are not the on-label prescription basis for testosterone. So, so those are problems. And, and even the bigger problem uh, by far is marketing for non-medical reasons. And so marketing a testosterone clinic, so to speak, for the purposes of looking better, losing, you know, losing some fat around the waist, getting a six pack, improving your bench press, um, all of that sort of thing would be for non-medical purposes. And, and that would uh, trigger potentially uh, even criminal ramifications. And, um, and the, it, the same would be true, not just of words, but of pictures. So if there's a, a clinic that's putting pictures and video of these huge, you know, muscular athletes uh, doing, you know, playing sports or competing in physique type competitions. Uh, I think that's somewhat of a red flag for government regulators to say, hey, is this is this an outfit that's catering to a patient population that needs medical help? Or is this really more of a steroid mill um, akin to like a, a pill mill uh, of oxycodone. And, and I think there's somewhat of an analogy there. Obviously, there's pain management and physicians who need to uh, prescribe these, these pain management drugs for patients um, who are in pain. But, um, but sometimes that can spill over into simply pre prescribing and providing drugs to people who want them for no medical need. And I think what many practitioners don't appreciate is that if you are on the radar screen because of your marketing material, what your website looks like, at the very least, it's fair game for a regulator to knock on your door, namely the Board of Medicine. But it's like it's also possible that a, uh, a sting operation can be performed with somebody who appears to be a patient coming in and setting up a story where they don't have a medical problem. They're right. playing in the gray zone for performance enhancement. And then when the doctor asks, well, do you have any, um, what's your libido like? Um, are you listless? What's your energy like? Are you sleeping okay? And if you answer, well, you know, for most of those, I'm okay. I'm just looking to feel better and perhaps bench press a little bit more. And, you know, you will have gone through all the motions and gotten a no to all of those trigger questions. Um, and if you pull out your prescription pad and start writing, that can and will be exhibit A for potentially <laughs> a, a, a criminal um, action. Is that you, correct? You, you are 100% correct, Jeff, and it's more than hypothetical. I've seen it. I've seen where the marketing materials and other advertising uh, of the of the physician um, attract the interest of a medical licensing board, and an investigator is sent in undercover to present to the physician and to, as you say, check off a number of boxes that that rule out various bases for prescribing the drug and then um and then there's some 
uh, talk about, well, I, I just really want to, I don't feel like my workouts are productive. I feel like I'd get more bang for the buck. I'm watching my diet. I've still got some love handles. And, you know, basically I, I want this for cosmetic purposes, you know, would be the implication. And all of that is recorded. And all of that is part of the exhibit against this doctor when um, the medical licensing board convenes. And obviously it's not just that um, undercover agent who who will be make the case against the doctor, they then demand the records to see what the doctor was doing with other patients. And and I've been through this process, Jeff, and and I've I've gone through it with physicians. I've seen physicians uh, in other cases go through it. It's it's very unpleasant. It's a uh, a scouring of every little aspect of, of a patient record. It's looking to compare the handwritten notes or of the patient, of what the patient said in the intake forms to what the physician wrote down. Wow, see that? The, so the, the patient clicked no problems with libido and, and, and you know, clicked that box by writing that down. And the physician wrote down patient complaints of low libido. Uh, and suddenly they've caught a contradiction. And and sometimes the reality is the patient may have written that, but then the patient actually told the physician verbally what they were maybe uncomfortable putting in writing right. or embarrassed or whatever. And so if that happens, it's extremely important that the physician make some note about that patient verbally says libido problems because they'll go through every little aspect of that patient's record and they'll ask questions uh, they'll look at you know what the what the dose was they'll look at um, you know whether there were examinations of things like you know testicular examinations prostate examinations uh, trying to make sure that the physician has ruled out all other possible contraindications or or reasons for some of the symptoms um, so all of that you, you there's no physician who would want the medical licensing authorities to scour the any any of the patient records. It's, it's most unpleasant. Um, but but to get back to even the issue of what's the difference between a medical prescription and a non-medical prescription, at least in the eyes of the law uh, or a medical licensing board. Well, one of the things they look at is dose, right? Because it's one thing to prescribe a patient a replacement dose of, let's say, 100 or 200 milligrams of testosterone ester a week, um, and it's another thing to give 400 or or 500. Uh, I've seen doctors questioned about why they were prescribing other types of anabolic steroids besides testosterone, things like nandrolone uh, or oxandrolone, and need to justify those things. I would say to any doctor that if you're going to go outside of the, the very, very strict confines of, of strict replacement of testosterone, um, you better have a, a full file cabinet uh, prepared to show regulators or other authorities why you're prescribing to patients in the way you are. What is your authority on? What basis? What is? Show me the research. Show me your, the standards on which you're relying. Uh, that can become very, very important 
in a situation like a medical licensing board review or from a, a other type of um, regulator or administrator. I think one of the take-home messages I'm picking up from you is that a dilettante should not be doing this. Somebody without the background training and experience to know all of the details, it would be a blunder on their part to just follow the money and just say, I can run a mill. I can spend four minutes with each patient and make a right. gazillion dollars because you probably will make great money until you get caught. And once you get caught, you're going to have a lot of explaining to do. And without the background training and experience, I'm guessing the records will not support their prescribing habits. Well, certainly one of the questions I've seen medical licensing board authorities ask doctors is, well, you're not an endocrinologist. That's not your training. What made you think that you could go into the you know the practice of almost exclusively prescribing hormones to people? And and that becomes a, a, a tough question to answer. To follow up on what you said, I hundred percent agree that uh, this is not something for a physician to simply blunder into, uh, get proper training. I just spoke at a, a conference uh, just recently, two weeks ago, to about 400 physicians who are in this age management practice, and they're there for annual and, and other conferences to learn. To, to be fully informed about the latest research, the latest standards, see the studies, learn the, the, the best aspects of, of how to practice in this area, um, that's important because you do want to have you know, share information, learn from experts who've been doing it, um, and, and knowledge is power. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epison Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's infonews at medicaljustice.com. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.